The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 4:17 through 5:1. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to open up the word of God and preach to you. But before I do, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for the gift of grace and the means of grace that it is to be in this gathering inside the liturgy, uh, being formed and shaped as worshipers of you, that we are not like you in so many different ways. Our thoughts are not your thoughts. Our ways are not your ways. And we need to be straightened out. We need to be um, reformed. We need to be healed. We need so many different things from you. And one of the ways you minister to your people is through this gathering. And now, as we come to the preaching of your word, I pray, Father, that you would enable me, that Think through my mind so I think your thoughts and not mine. Um, Speak through my voice so it's your words and not mine. And that you would help us, those sitting out there this morning, help them hear um, your word, your direction, and not mine. Father, we know that this cannot happen without a miracle um, through your spirit. And so we lean hard into your spirit this morning. Speak for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Well, I do want to welcome you here at Sacred City Church. Uh, Today we are beginning a seven-month study through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that is recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7. If you didn't know, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon or speech ever given in the history of humanity. Hopefully that right there would pique your interest and cause you you to study it. Um, And maybe not. Well, here's another thing, all right? The problem with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is very few people understand it and even fewer people believe it or practice it. Some people think that the Sermon on the Mount is like an entrance exam. 
right? You do this behavior in order to enter into, enter into heaven when you die. Others think the Sermon on the Mount is a utopian vision for this world, and yet they believe it's actually an impossibility to actually practice it and live this way, so it makes no real difference in their life. Now listen, if you read this scripture like an entrance exam, you are going to be terrified by it. Let me just give you one. Judge not so that you will not be judged. Now, well, I never do that. Well, then you're better than I. Because somebody cuts me off in traffic, and what am I doing? I'm judging them hard. Moron! What are they? Right? That's so, I'm such a hypocrite when it comes to, if I don't use my blinker occasionally, it was just an accident. Somebody else uses a, don't use their blinker. You anarchist, what's wrong with you? Right? Judge not, you should not be judged. I judge others. Guess what that means? I'm getting judged by God. That should terrify me. Honestly, though, it doesn't. See, for those of us who already know that we are not justified by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ, Galatians 5.16, Jesus' words in this sermon might actually really confuse us. Wait, I thought all that was required of me was to believe in Jesus. What's all this stuff about turning the other cheek? Somebody sues me and takes something from me. I'm supposed to give them even more? So we just skip that part. Just keep reading. Get to the back half of the gospel where it talks about Jesus dying for our sins. In my 20 plus years as a Christian, I have never had a pastor preach verse by verse through this section. That may not be your experience. Maybe you have. I haven't. In fact, many pastors avoid it because of Jesus' controversial teachings on subjects like anger, lust, divorce, money, loving your enemies, and anxiety. Many people think, oh, that's not what, the culture doesn't want to hear that, so we're not going to talk about that. Let's just skip to the end of the Gospels. <clears throat> this is one reason why it has now become really hard to tell the difference between a follower of Jesus and anybody else in our society. We have evaded the concrete teachings of Jesus for what some have called easy believism. All that Jesus really wants you to do is pray a prayer so that you will go to heaven when you die. That's it. That's all he wants from you. And people have believed that, called themselves Christians, checked the box on their voting record, and yet their life does not look like Jesus or the Sermon on the Mount in any way. They feel no responsibility to be a peacemaker. They feel no responsibility to turn the other cheek. They feel no responsibility to Love their enemies. My enemies are trying to destroy this country. What do you mean, love them? Yeah, that's a good question you should probably ask. That's what Jesus is asking of you. 
So let me show you my hand right away. This is where we're going for seven months. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' instructions for Christians living in this broken world. It is his royal edicts for disciples living in his kingdom. This is his constitution and bill of rights. But it's actually even more than that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is answering the age-old philosophical question, what does the good life look like? What does it mean for us to flourish as human beings? How can we find happiness and meaning and fulfillment and wholeness? Jesus' answer to those questions is the Sermon on the Mount. And quite surprisingly, Jesus' answers are much different than the ones being given to us today. In fact, you could say that Jesus' answers are almost always upside down to the answers and values that our current culture, our current postmodern secular culture is giving to us. But I can't get ahead of myself. That's going to come week in and week out. The first thing I need to do today is to help us get our bearings in the book of Matthew so that we can see the big picture that Matthew is trying to show us. See, all of this, uh, the, we call these things the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are, think of the Beatitudes as trees, right? We're gonna focus on each tree in the coming weeks, but today we need to pull back and look at the forest, right? We've heard the saying, you can miss, you know, you can miss the forest for the sake of the tree. So today we're gonna take an aerial view and, su- and, and survey the literary structure of the book in the first few chapters. Now that might sound really boring to you. It's not, I promise, it's important, so stay focused here. Um, if you could open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to do a little bit of a survey of the first four chapters to help us understand what, he's, what uh, Matthew's trying to do. <clears throat> now listen, I remember when I had first gotten saved and I was going to start reading the Bible and I wanted to start, you know, I was just going to open up my Bible and start in the very beginning, but a wise pastor says, ah, don't do that. Start in the Gospels, in the New Testament. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So I opened up Matthew, and, and I was just sadly disappointed. Right away, sadly disappointed. Right? The first 17 verses of Matthew is a genealogy. This guy was not taught modern marketing techniques. Right? Where's the hook, bro? Where's the hook? The son of, the son of, the son of, lame, skip it. Scan it, go to the next chapter, right? Who begins, now listen, who begins an epic narrative on the life of the most controversial and the most influential person to ever live with a genealogy? Lame intro, right? Lame intro, bro, right? Well, it was lame for me and probably for most of you, because I didn't understand what Matthew was doing, who he was writing to. I didn't understand his background. I didn't understand what was going on. See, Matthew begins his narrative on the life of Jesus by connecting him to the royal line of David and the covenant promises of Abraham. Now listen, here's why. Matthew's writing to Jewish people mainly, and the Jewish people of that day reading the gospel would have immediately got the hook. They would have immediately saw the, what he was trying to do. 
they would have immediately seen the implications and they were huge implications. The long-awaited king has come. The Messiah king was to come from Abraham's descendants and the line of David. And Matthew's saying, yo, Jesus is both. So chapters one and two are letting the reader know the long-awaited Messiah king is here. And then Matthew goes on to prove to prove that through a collection of events from the life of Jesus and taking these Old Testament prophecies and showing, remember when they promised this? Jesus did it. Remember when they promised this? Jesus did it. And so that's what we're going to see. Open up. You can look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, almost all of that is genealogy. <clears throat> but then you get to verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The reason that's in block quotes is because that's an Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling. We know this story, right? Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God. He's born in a unique way. He's born sinless. So now he doesn't have original sin like we have original sin when we're born. Jesus is born unique in a very unique way. Then if you keep reading in chapter two, you have the famous story of the wise men, right? We all know the story of the, of the wise men. And what do the wise men come seeking? They come seeking, quote, the king of the Jews. Then we have Herod's kingdom. King Herod, right? Greek King Herod of Rome. Greek King Herod, his, his kingdom is being challenged. Hear me. His political kingdom is being challenged by a rival king, Jesus. And so what does he do? Even though he's an infant, he, hire, he tells all the children to be killed because he can't find out which one it is. Just kill all the boys. Kill all the boys. This forces, and an angel shows up, tells Joseph, you better get out of here. You better go to Egypt. Again, this is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Jesus and his family go off to Egypt. They live in hiding for a while. Herod dies. An angel shows up, tells Joseph, the threat is gone. Take your family back to Israel. He goes back. He, find, he winds up in Nazareth. Jesus is raised in Nazareth, again, fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy that he will be called the Nazarene. And Jesus lives 30 lives, 30 lives, 30 years. He lives his life for 30 years in abject poverty as a carpenter's son, his father most likely dying at a young, when he was still at a young age. And he lives in Nazareth for 30 years, okay? So here it is. The first section of Matthew could easily be called, the king is here. Boom, that's what he's trying to get across. The king is here. Now, many people get frustrated when I step on their political toes, okay? I do that from time to time. I think that because God does that from time to time. People tell me, Justin, don't get political. I can't not get political. Here's the message of the Bible. The king is here, and a kingdom includes a government, and a kingdom includes a reign, and a kingdom includes a way of life, and a kingdom, when there is a king, you know what it's saying? The king's here, Herod's not him. The king's here, Rome's, that's not it. The king's here, the president ain't him. The king is here, the United States government might not be it either. It is absolutely political. Now, we shouldn't, I should not be partisan, agreed, 100%. But the king is here is the message of Matthew, and that is very political, okay? Now, let's keep reading. The second section, which is found in chapter three, could be called, the king is anointed. 
See, when a king was anointed in the Old Testament, he was chosen by God and the prophet or priest would pour oil over his head, which I honestly think would be amazing. We should do that still as like the presidents. I would love it. Just start with a very humiliating act of putting them on the national television and just oil on them. I would just love it, right? I would, I would love to see the hair. I would just, it would be amazing, right? Not doing it. Oh, I get it. But this is what it's, it was symbolizing the spirit of God coming upon a person's head, running down their beard, setting them apart as holy, setting them apart to be used by God in a special way. Now in chapter three, we see John the Baptist going before Jesus, preparing the way, saying this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist is saying, Jesus is coming as a king to separate, to divide. So that's what his message is. Then Jesus goes to John to be baptized. Now this is like a flipping, flipping the script right away. John's, John the Baptist's message is repent, Jesus doesn't need to repent. He's the sinless son of God. He's never done anything wrong. He's perfect. He doesn't need to repent. He goes to John, I need to be baptized you. And John like balks on it. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. 14. John would have prevented him saying, no, no, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented. <clears throat> and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up from the water and behold, look, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This is the anointing of God. This, the anointing that was symbolized in the Old Testament by oil. This is actually happening. The spirit is coming upon Jesus. And then look what the father does. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, one thing that we have to remember, when they're saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we have this weird way of thinking of heaven only as like a different dimension, right? That's not the way the Jewish people believed it. That's not the way Jesus taught it. Right here we see the heaven's opening and a dove, the Holy Spirit, descending upon him in the everyday life, the real world. You could really see it. It looked like something like a dove. You could see it into our world. So heaven isn't necessarily some outer dimension or something. The Bible uses the word heaven in a lot of ways to describe the sky, outer space, atmosphere, and beyond, etc. So we see the heavens open and God anoint the new king, Jesus. And then he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God audibly confirms his identity. Now, if you are familiar with Old Testament kings or any ancient kings for that matter, one of the roles of the king was to lead his troops into battle. 
And this is the third section we see in chapter four. Jesus, the newly anointed king, is tested in battle against the devil. Jesus is led by the spirit out into the desert. And then after fasting for 40 days and nights, he goes to spiritual war with the devil and with temptation. Now this vignette should take us back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were tempted and tried by the devil. If you can remember, Satan twisted the words of God and caused Adam and Eve to mistrust God and listen to him. Well, the exact opposite happens here. Satan comes to Jesus. He tempts and twists the word of God. And at every point, Jesus rebukes him and stays faithful to God and God's word. Jesus refuses to worship Satan and therefore he passes the test and wins the war. So we should see a reversal of what happened in the Garden of Eden where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Jesus, succeeds. Where the first Lord of creation, Adam, failed, the second Lord, Jesus, succeeds. Okay? Now here's where things get a little weird. The king is here. The king has been anointed. The king has won the battle against Satan. What's the next move? Well, the next logical move is for the king to establish his kingdom, set up his government, establish his laws, determine his borders, right? To to differentiate between his people and other kingdom people. Now, interestingly enough, this is exactly what Jesus does. But he does it in a way that's quite strange. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Now, boom, we're like, for the modern reader, this, this is no problem for us at all. Right, we get it. Jesus starts preaching. Jesus was a preacher, right? Well, yes, he was a preacher. We get that now. But what king preaches? Well, for that, we have to understand the culture of Jesus' day. The two most dominant worldviews in Jesus' In Jesus' day, now think about it. Jesus, he wasn't beamed out of heaven. He didn't step onto the earth with just a heavenly culture, 100% heavenly culture. He dressed like heaven. He talked like heaven. He was heaven. No, 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 no. He contextualizes himself. He becomes the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Emmanuel, God with us. And he, what does he come? He comes looking like a normal person in that culture. Dressing the same way they did, talking the same way they did, using the same words, using the same philosophical terms. Jesus comes like that, right? And what Jesus, and here's, here's the two dominant philosophical worldviews of that day. Scholars call them now Second Temple Judaism. I'll, you don't have to know what that is yet. We'll get into it later. Second Temple Judaism, it means 
Jewish people that had, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they believed certain things about Bible and the truth and how you needed to worship God and who is in and who, in, who is out. The worldview was dominated by that culture, Jewish culture, Second Temple Judaism. And the second one was Greco-Roman philosophy. Okay, Greco-Roman philosophy, dominant of that day. Plato, Socrates, they'd all lived 300 years before. Jesus is stepping into a world where Plato was already doing his thing. Socrates had already done his thing. And those worldviews had dominated the scene. Okay? Now, here it is. The Jews were expecting a new David. And they, we, if you've been in church, you've heard this before. They were expecting a conquering king, right? They were expecting a beautiful well-built man like David to come riding in on a horse with a bloody sword and start putting the Romans where they belong underneath our feet, right? They were expecting a conquering king to come in and set up an earthly kingdom in such a way as David had done before, except only better. That's what they're expecting, right? Now, here's what's interesting. The Greco-Romans of that day, the Greco-Roman idea of the ideal king was a virtuous philosopher. The philosophers talked about the best king, the ideal king, would be a philosopher king. And interestingly enough, that is, is, more, accurate, is more accurate. That's how Jesus actually came. He didn't come as the conquering king like the Jews thought. He came as the philosopher king that fit more into the Greco-Roman idea. Now, listen, he isn't just a philosopher. I'm not just saying he's just sitting around talking and that's all he's about to do. He's not just a philosopher, but that's how he comes. He's certainly not less than a philosopher, right? As we were gonna read, Jesus, people miss this. Jesus was the smartest person to ever walk the face of this planet. He's going to type, the whole Sermon on the Mount is just tying people in knots. Right? Kind of how your freshman philosophy professor tried to do it. Like, prove to me that you exist. We're not going to get into that. But Jesus, that's what Jesus would do. Oh, you've heard that it said? Boom, I say this. Oh, the law teaches you this? I say this. Twisting people in philosophical knots, proving to them that he can outsmart literally everybody, and he's bringing something that's beyond them. He's bringing the kingdom of God into the kingdoms of this world. Now, <clears throat> scholar Josh Jipp says this one role of the ideal king in antiquity, listen, is to embody the law internally and to produce good legislation that transforms the people and leads them in obedience to the law. So the ideal philosopher king would actually be that good person, be that virtuous person, and then teach people in such a way that they could actually become like him. Not just have the right thoughts in their mind. Not just know what goodness is, know what the right way is. But actually become the people that want to obey it and can actually obey it, right? That's one of the problems with laws today, right? We can make laws, but we can't make bad people obey the laws, right? It's a major problem. A philosopher king knew how to embody it in such a way that his disciples were changed from the inside out and they would actually want to obey the law and become a virtuous person and live in society in such a way. And like 
So that's, and that's kind of how Jesus is approaching the situation. That's why he comes and he doesn't come with a sword. He comes preaching. And he actually does some other things that philosophers do. Um, like a philosopher, he comes and he starts gathering disciples. Gathering people to have discussions. Gathering people to listen to him. Look at verse 18, chapter 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, look, 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 and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, I will make you. This is discipleship. He's not saying, follow me, you're going to learn some interesting things. Follow me, I'm going to teach you some logical steps to win any argument. Follow me, you're going to be really, follow me, I will make you. I'm going to form you into a certain type of person, a fisher of men. It's not just follow me, you'll go to heaven when you die. It's bigger than that. It's more real world than that. Keep reading. I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. They saw the wisdom. They saw the power. They saw something special about Jesus. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So, Jesus starts calling disciples, people who are meant to listen to his teaching and begin to shape their lives around its truth. Now, I want you to see something really important here. This is a great, actually, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Let's just keep reading uh, all the way to verse 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching, again, like a philosopher, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I want you to, this is a very special phrase that the apostle Matthew is trying to, he's using and he's wanting us to see. The gospel of the kingdom is bigger than believe in Jesus and you'll die and go to heaven someday. It's bigger than that. And look what it includes. Keep reading. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people... So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is what I want you to see from this. This is a great summary of Jesus' ministry of what Jesus came to do in his kingdom. Verses 17 through 25, as a philosopher king, here's what Jesus came to do. One, he came to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not you can go to heaven when you die. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Second, he came to call disciples to himself. Third, he came to teach them how to embody his message and live a kingdom life now. I'll make you fishers of men, right? The rest of the sermon is all about him making them into a different type of person that's different from the culture. And fourth, he came to heal the sick, perform miracles, and cast out demons. Now, listen to pastor and scholar 
John Piper. Very few people actually accept Jesus this way. For example, one thing we can say right off the bat is that you can't have the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount without the Jesus who cleansed the leper, healed the centurion's servant, and stilled the storm and cast out demons. The writer, Matthew, who gives us the one, gives us the other. And it is arbitrary to do what some modern folk try to do, namely say that they admire the ethical teacher of the Sermon on the Mount, but they don't want to get involved with the spooky, supernatural person who still storms and casts out demons. Or... For some, the opposite temptation may overcome them. They may have a charismatic fascination with the miracles of Jesus. But when it comes to reckoning with the one who said, don't call your brother a fool. Don't lust. Don't get divorced. Don't swear. Don't return evil for evil. Love your enemy. Well, they like the miracle worker who heals their diseases out of this but this radical intruder into their personal lifestyle, they're not so interested in him. Or I want a Jesus who gets me to heaven when I die, but I don't want a Jesus who infects or impacts my lifestyle choices. When we look at chapter 4, 17 through 25, we see Jesus' kingdom ministry It's about way more than getting us to heaven when we die. It's about, here it is, creating spiritual, physical, ethical, mental, and relational wholeness. What good is it of healing someone of a disease if they're going to go right back into their broken marriage and and get a divorce? What good is it? Now they're sick and miserable, or now they're healed and miserable, I mean. What good is it if he delivers them out of a situation only to send them back out to live the lifestyle that actually got them into the situation? No. Jesus' kingdom ministry is whole person ministry. Deliverance from demons, yes. Deliverance to live in light of the truth, yes. Another way to say this, it's about creating human flourishing in its fullest sense. What good is it to heal somebody's body if their spirit's not right with God? Congratulations, you have a healed body. Now you're going to hell. Jesus is creating the values of his kingdom, the governmental rules of his kingdom, And he's trying to show us that it's about spiritual wholeness, physical wholeness, ethical wholeness, mental wholeness, relational wholeness. What we call that, and philosophers call that, is human flourishing. Way more than just getting our sins forgiven. The Sermon on the Mount shows us what it looks like to live inside God's kingdom. And already, and this is, we'll get into this, an already and not yet kingdom. A kingdom, Jesus says the king is here, and yet he lived and he died and he was resurrected and he's ascended to the right hand and the king is going to come again to consummate that kingdom, to finally bring it in fulfillment. 
What does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus? The answer to that question is the Sermon on the Mount. I asked you this morning, do you want to know how to become a citizen of Jesus' kingdom? Do you want to know how to learn to be meek, righteous, merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker that is called the child of God? Well, here's the deal. Interestingly enough, your first step isn't to like try to act like it or try to like make it happen or I'm going to do that. If that's your first step, the Sermon on the Mount should terrify you. Terrify you. The standard is so absolute. The first step is to go back to John the Baptist, go back to the message of Jesus. What were the first words they said? Repent. Repent. The first step is to transfer your allegiance from the kingdoms of this world or even the kingdoms of the self to the kingdom of Jesus. We do what Peter and Andrew do in chapter 4. They left their old life behind. They threw down their nets. They left their father. And they say, we're following this new king, Jesus. Think of it like this. There are real benefits to being a citizen of the United States of America. Our government affords us many blessings that other citizens of other countries in the world would literally die for. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is offering us the real benefits and blessings of his kingdom. Spiritual wholeness. Healing, comfort, and inheritance, soul satisfaction, mercy, a sight of God, a way of being in the world that is in line with eternity, a way of living in the world that is in line with the world itself. It goes with the grain of the universe. A way that we were meant to live in relation to God, each other, ourselves, and the world. This is the life and kingdom that we were made for. The question is, are you up for it? Will you abandon your allegiances to other kings and follow Jesus? Hear me this morning. It's not just about praying a prayer. It's about transferring your allegiances from the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of the self to the kingdom of Jesus. It's about following Jesus as your king, letting him shape your morals, what you believe to be right and wrong. Letting Jesus shape your political views. Letting Jesus shape your relationships. Letting Jesus shape your worldview and your lifestyle. That's what the sermon's about. He gets in our business, and he's meant to get in our business. And we're to read it, be terrified by it, 
repent and let it change us into a certain type of person who then goes out into the world and lives as salt and light in the world. Jesus himself, one of the most terrifying things Jesus says in this sermon is, quote, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Pause. I'll just say it like this. Not everyone who prays a prayer of salvation. Not everyone who, Jesus, I don't want to go to hell when I die. Okay. Not everyone who does that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the one who is a disciple, the one whose life has been transformed, the one who is letting the kingdom of God shape the way that he lives in the world, not the one that prayed a prayer, not the one that's got a sticker on his bumper, not the one that wears the Christian T-shirt or the WWJD bracelet, the one where the gospel of the kingdom has impacted them in such a way that they are changed. Jesus' sermon and this whole sermon series, some of you just try to hold on. Let Justin get past this thing he's in. It's going to be seven months. <laughs> this whole sermon series about hearing the words of Jesus, believing them, and then doing them because he is our king. That's what it means to practice the way of Jesus. His words are meant to affect our real life, the way we live in the world. Now, I hope we spend the next seven months reading and reading and rereading the Sermon on the Mount. And when we do, the more we do, the more we let the Bible be the Bible and we don't skip past it. Get uncomfortable and then just skip past it. He can't mean that. He can't mean that. Cut off your hand if you're lusting. What? No. Just get past that. It's going to terrify us. It's meant to. That's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And yet, and what I'm about to say does not take any weight off of what I've already said before. Jesus Christ, the King, has embodied the Sermon on the Mount perfectly, and he's the only one who ever has and the only one who ever will. He was the one who embodied the Beatitudes. He's the one who's utterly meek. He's the one who's utterly poor in spirit. He's the one who mourned and hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He's the one that fulfills the law on our behalf. Jesus fulfills the, the demands he puts out here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus fulfilled them, and you and I don't, and that's why we need Jesus. So Jesus lives the life that we can't live. The perfect king shows us what the kingdom life looks like and lives it for us, and then he goes to the cross, and he takes our place as kingdom breakers as rebels, as the little punks that are in the kingdom that are, throwing, that are breaking rules and doing dumb stuff. That's who we are. Many of us like to point at people in the streets rioting and doing dumb stuff. Look at those idiots out there. That's who you are in the kingdom of God. That's who you are. You're that person breaking laws and destroying stuff. That's
That's who you are. When you see those people in the street, you should see yourself. And the kingdom of God is what? The king dying for those morons. Absolutely. And guess what the king does? The king doesn't stop there. He takes away the wrath of God. Thank God he absorbs it all on our behalf. And then he goes to the right hand of the Father and he sends the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit for? To enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. We've got power now to do what we couldn't do before. Now, when I see those people in the streets and I get so mad at what they're doing and so frustrated, and then I'm like, oh wait, that's who I am in the kingdom of God. I can now forgive them because Jesus forgave me. I have a power. I can actually forgive a person like that now. It's a miracle. That's how the sermon's meant to work on us. Let it do the work. If you read it and you get self-righteous, you're reading it wrong. None of that came out in the first service, so y'all are lucky. <laughs> I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you for your grace. I, we read the sermon and we want a world like that. And you say you're making a world like that. I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis says when he's reading this. He said the words of Jesus in the sermon that he's going to make us perfect as our heavenly father is perfect isn't idealistic gas. It isn't a politician getting up there and promising something he can't deliver. This is what Jesus is going to do with the world and what he's going to do to us if we let him. Father, I pray that you would overcome our wills, overcome our alliances to the kingdom of this world and we would let you do this to us. Make us into this type of people. Let this church be full of Sermon on the Mount people. People that have been served by Jesus and loved by Jesus and forgiven by Jesus and empowered by Jesus, that we actually live it. And Father, <clears throat> of course I'm reminded, we don't do this by just sucking it up and trying harder. We repent. We repent. And so you've given us an ordinance, sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where every week Christians can be reminded the only thing that makes us different is we're willing to repent. We admit that we're foolish. We admit that we break the rules. We admit that we can never earn our way into your kingdom. And you once and again and over and over and over and again Invite us in to your table. Forgive us completely and empower us. And so I ask that you would do that. Let this be a means of grace this morning. As we open our hands, we confess our sins, we repent, and we receive what you said is the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us. I pray that you do this work in our hearts for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.